podcast. This is your host, Lindsay Rowland. Today we have part one of our congressional candidate series. We are joined by Wesley Hunt. Wesley is an Army veteran and was a U.S. congressional Republican candidate for the 7th District of Texas in this past election. He was born and raised in Houston, Texas. Thank you, Wesley, for being here today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yes, we appreciate your time. All right, let's jump right in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in the Army and at yeah, West Point? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me on. It's awesome. Yeah. And uh, got, got into West Point, got into the Army because it's kind of a family thing. Uh, my dad is a retired lieutenant colonel in the Army. And he did 23 years in the military. And uh, my sister, who's 10 years older than me, uh, went to West Point in my family first. So she graduated West Point class of 93. Uh, she went on to do 23 years, all active duty as a military intelligence officer. And then some 10 years later, I came around and I cannot and will not be outdone by my sister. Uh, so she, she's the one that kind of blazed the trail. So I went to West Point, uh, did eight years active duty as an Apache driver. And then my brother, uh, who was 10 months younger than me, also- So you're, so you're twins. Yeah, we are Irish twins. We are literally <laughs> born, we are literally Irish twins, yes. Right. Uh, and uh, he's too much at eight days. The eight days always matter with us, younger than me. He went to West Point and then he became a traitor because he went into the Navy after he went to West Point. Uh, we don't we don't hold that against. Wait, him. wait, 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 wait. Now it's interrupted. Right. Why would he do that? Yeah. So every now and again, they allow uh, certain cadets to cross commission into other services. Uh, and so if you have, for example, if you have like an, a Naval Academy cadet that wants to go be an Army Ranger or you have somebody at West Point that wants to go be a pilot or do whatever, they do what's called an exchange, a service exchange. And so okay. my brother West Point graduate, but then did five years active duty in the Navy as a surface warfare officer in San Diego. Interesting choice. Very yeah. interesting choice, but we used to give him a lot of crap for it, but then you find out it was a brilliant choice. I'll tell you why. Okay. When I got back from Iraq in 2006, he was stationed in San Diego, California. And prior to me visiting him, you could imagine he was the, the, the butt of every joke in the hunt house. Oh, the Navy guy, we're all Army guys, but you're a Navy guy. And you could imagine how that how that went on. And I got back from Baghdad in 2006. He calls me up, he said, Wesley, I know you had a long deployment. Why don't you come out here and visit me in San Diego? I said, you know what, brother? I will, it's a great idea. Flew into San Diego and sun is shining, beautiful weather, beautiful people. He pulls up in a BMW convertible in his white uniform and goes, welcome to San Diego. And I was like, I will never make fun of you again. <laughs> <laughs> or you're like, screw you. <laughs> I'm in Fort Hood, Texas. And you're surfing every day. <laughs> oh, you're in Fort Hood. Oh, man, that's even worse, right? Than being anywhere yes. else yes. in the Army. From mm -hmm. Fort Hood to San Diego, I'm like, okay, never mind. I never, I never made fun of him again. Yeah, and like we have to admit, San Diego is absolutely beautiful. beautiful. Oh gosh, beautiful! It's gorgeous. Yeah. gorgeous. And uh, so there's 60 years worth of military service just in my immediate family, uh, and so that's really kind of how we got here. Family, parents were really big on service and making sure that you give back to the greatest country in the world. And I, and we don't. My dad says that, and I, now we say it. We just don't, you know, take light of that. It's actually true, and people have got to make sacrifices in order for it to continue for our future. And that's what got me to West Point. And then after that, you became an Apache Longbow helicopter yes. pilot. Okay. Yeah. Coolest, coolest thing I'll ever do in my life. It's just been downhill uh, ever since. I mean, once you fly those things, it gets no cooler than that. <laughs> really? That's interesting that you say that. Yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. 
uh, you know, did that did that for eight years. Did a tour in in Iraq and SX, and then did uh, two tours in Saudi Arabia. And I was a diplomatic liaison officer there for a couple of years. Yeah, that's cool. How did you how did you score that gig? It was interesting. It, it was it was I was kind of getting toward the end of uh, toward the end of my commitment. I was actually at the captain's career course. Uh, I happened to already have my uh, my top secret clearance. And this this job came up and usually it was for majors, but there was a shortage of majors that they could put into this role at the time. Uh, and because I had my, my secret clearance, they, they, they chose to send me over and I did one tour and then stayed on for another one. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like an exciting job. You just don't hear people it's, it's transfer to a job like that or get a gig like that. So good on you. Yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Got to travel a lot around the area, the region, but also got to really see that our real and true ally, uh, in this country is Israel. Um, and in that region, you gotta be careful because we, there's only one true real ally to the American cause. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's Israel. Trust me on that. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and then, so, um, you said you were in Iraq in 2006, right? Well, I was just curious where you were, you were at, because I was in Kuwait in, um, six and seven, I, I ran like convoy security through Iraq. Okay. Like theater okay. support. So where were you at? You were in Baghdad, you said? I was in Baghdad. I was at Camp Taji. Okay. Oh, Taji. Yeah. Baghdad. Yeah. Were you like Ali Asalim or? Um, I was at Arif John, actually. Arif John? Okay. Yeah. But I remember Taji was like one of those places where like if it rained, the mud was just everywhere. It was horrible. Yeah. It, yeah. Only, it only rained, only rained like, like twice. Maybe. Yeah. But when it did, you remembered it though. Oh, it was a mess. Yeah. And, like we used to ride bikes around. Uh, around Camp Taji to kind of get around. And once it rained, you can't ride a bike anywhere. That's what I remember having to like walk everywhere in that mud. It was awful. Uh, it was gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, uh, not to digress, but I remember getting stuck there because I don't know if it was the Taji Bridge or something that was blown up. And so we couldn't move for like for like 30 or 40 days and we were stuck at Taji. And it was just like, oh man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially being in Kuwait. Right, because Taji is so small. <laughs> right, and at least in Kuwait you have your pool. You're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so back on topic. Um, okay, so I want to move forward a little bit because I really want to talk about your campaign. Um, so fast forward, and then you moved back to Houston, Texas, right? Or no, I'm sorry, you went to Cornell. Yep. And you yeah. had three master's degrees. Yeah, yeah. I got got done with the military and got done with. Saudi, I got home from Saudi in May of 2012, and I was in Ithaca, New York, by Ju by the end of July of 2012. So literally, got got back home, out processed, got my stuff settled, and then drove up to Ithaca, New York from from Fort Hood. It was crazy, and uh, did three masters in four years. So I did a master's of business, uh, public administration, and they have what's called the Industrial and Labor Relations School, the RLR School, basically focuses on on, on kind of HR and personnel and the importance of human labor. And it's really one of few in the, in the entire world. And that's when I realized that, you know, of all the education that I've had in my, in my entire life, that last degree, the IRR degree was the most important one because you realize just the importance of human capital. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And you must've done a lot of studying there because that's a lot of education or a lot, lot of, of degrees. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got my master's in public administration and, you know, you would have thought that was like. Oh, you great, did? Like, where, where did you get it from? Um, I'm in the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. Ooh. Yeah, but I was, no, it was actually because I was lazy because I was at the Defense Language Institute and didn't want to move again. And okay. so I just moved down the hill and that, um, that yeah. school is right down the hill from the Defense Language Institute. So. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. Okay. So then you move back, you move back home. And then what made you decide to run for office? So I moved back home and again, born and raised in Houston, uh, energy capital of the world, you know, kind of, this is, you know, I always joke and say the first football team we had here in Houston was the Houston Oilers. You know, I was telling my friends up in New York, I mean, this is how we make our living down here in Texas and moved back here, started working for a home builder here in town. And the congressman that who I actually voted for the first time I voted uh, actually in 2000 was his first time in Congress. Um, 18 year incumbent didn't think that he was going to lose uh, the election lost. And when he lost and uh, Texas in this particular district, that was the, that was formally, the seat was formally held by George HW Bush was the first congressman in the seat. And then Bill Archer and then John Culberson. And then it, flipped blue, I thought to myself, well, we need some leadership to hop in, jump into the fray now and see if we can get this seat back to Republican hands, particularly its location being in the energy capital of the world. And it's centrally located in the energy corridor here in Houston. So I was like, okay, we gotta, we gotta make this right. Also, Dan Crenshaw, uh, if, you're, if you know who that is. Was oh, a big, awesome. big fan, He's a big awesome fan. Guy. Yeah, awesome guy. And just a Awesome guy, great role model, and he ran in 2018, which is very inspirational for me to watch him do it and see him and see young veterans uh, uh, get into the world of politics, because I think we internally view it as another form of additional service. Um, we aren't necessarily involved in kinetic operations and we aren't deploying, but this certainly is a way of serving our country outside of the battlefield, and I think the more of us that get into the fight like this, the better off the country is going to be because we aren't doing it for the title. We aren't doing it for the name. We're doing it because our, you know, the people of this country need good governing and they need good leadership. Yes, I agree. And just to tell you a little story. So I sometimes go to the Capitol Hill Club, especially when I was training as a lobbyist and I, I'll see Dan Crenshaw there and I just get like giddy, like a little girl. I'm like, that's <laughs> I mean, you can't miss them with the eye patch, right? No, you and can't. I mean, and he's got a beautiful wife and you're just like, I'm serious. There he is. I'm yeah. so excited. But anyways, yeah, I get giddy about so Dan Crenshaw. About Dan, like, it's like I've been out there before and it's just like, if he wants to disappear, he just takes off his eye patch. Really? He walks around and nobody recognizes who he is. The second he puts that thing on, he is, he is, he, he is recognized. He's one of the most recognizable politicians in the entire country. But without it, it's just pretty quiet so he'll, he'll be like yeah i'm just i'm just tired right now he'll just kind of take it off and just kind of chill and nobody has any idea who he is it's pretty, it's pretty cool that I, was is like, so I was like this is like your clark can't like superman look huh <laughs> no and i'm sure it completely works for him too he's like it's it's me time or it's time to have a drink right <laughs> yeah he's been he's all he's awesome though dan is he's been a good friend and just a really good servant and i think he's an example of what of what we can do um if you get young veterans in there that have the background to get in there and do this right and we're proud of them. Weren't you recently in one of his, um, was it a campaign thing or what, what were you in a commercial with oh, yeah. him? The Texas Reloaded. Oh yeah, that was so tell much me, fun. Tell me about this. It was so much fun. Like it was a day 
long. He called me up. He was like, I got an idea. I think, I think it'll do, I think it'll do pretty well. I'm like, sign me up. I said, one condition, as long as there's like a helicopter ready. He's like, we got that covered. And so it just, it was an all day thing. Uh, he actually did jump out that airplane, by the way, that actually was him. Uh, but we shot all the, all the, uh, b-roll stuff and all the, and all we did all of our lines one day and then he jumped out the, out the helicopter out the airplane the next day it is just kind of fun you know and it was obviously cheesy and funny uh but i think it was, it was memorable because you know every now and again we everyone takes our we take ourselves so seriously and the idea of just seeing some politicians just like just make light of it and just have fun and yeah. do a commercial that that young people can really get on board and laugh at and we can laugh at ourselves it was fun so hopefully We'll, we'll get on board to do something again here soon. Yeah, no, that was great. I love that. It was I'll, great. I'll tell them. I'll tell them. Yeah. Yes, please tell them. Um, okay, so let's talk about. Um, all right, so you are running for you're running for office, and then you ran against um, Lizzie Fletcher. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at the numbers. So, I mean, basically, like you, um, she only beat you by like ten thousand five hundred. I mean, do you want me to get down to the exact numbers? I mean, but I, I mean, I know the number. All right. So, but let's talk about that because I, I feel like that's a really close race. It's, mm-hmm. it's about 3% and uh, it's a really close race, uh, particularly in a, in a turnout in a district like this, that's just the most turn, highest turnout in the history of this district in, in 2020. And so it's close. And what's going to happen here in Texas, what's currently happening is we're going to redistrict here in Texas. As of right now, Texas is going to, excuse me, is going to get two or three, maybe potentially three new congressional districts. We'll see kind of how the census data comes out. And presumably, don't know for sure, we sh- we will probably get a seat here in Houston, given the population growth here, particularly in West Houston, um, probably Dallas. And if you get a third one, it'll probably, probably be in the San Antonio area. But don't hold me to that. This is just, you know, logically, this is what I would think. And so we'll see what that new district looks like. We'll see what CD7 looks like, but I'm committed to running again here in 2022. Well, that was my next question. Um, no, that's awesome. And since we're, you're talking about running, let's talk about your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I did not know you were doing a podcast. And obviously I'm a big fan of podcasts because I started my own this year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's called In the Hunt. Yeah. Um, so to, to our listeners, if you want to get out your phone and just, you know, subscribe to In the Hunt. <laughs> You know, if you would like to do that, but please, why? So why the podcast and what what motivated you to start? Brother, my brother and I, so my brother, you know, 10 months and eight days apart, he's my best friend, has been my best friend for his entire life, I tell him. So he's 38 years old. I'm like, yeah, I'll be your best friend for 38 years, bro. So get over it. Uh, so we're really close. And I think we've had, we have a unique view on the world, kind of given our background and given what we've seen, a unique view of America that's kind of antithetical to what to what we're seeing in the narrative and the rhetoric that we're seeing on TV. And so, you know, after after you lose, the only self-respecting thing to do is start your own podcast, I guess, and just talk about kind of some of the issues that I think are just unique to us. But we could also speak to it, uh, speak to the world, you know, with this with this platform. So there was a gentleman that I met on the on the campaign trail and I did uh, I was on his podcast a few times. His name is Josh Lowry. And he's called Oilfield 360. And he called me after it was over, after we lost. And he said, hey, you know, I think you need to continue to put out content and I want to help you do it. So he lets us use his studio to do this. And the topics are not necessarily, you know, just politics. It's about, you know, life and 
the way we view the world and race in America and politics and what it means to be, you know, a black Republican and why are we this way and how we got here and how we view the world. And instead of just trying to, you know, get everything in sound bites, the idea of putting information out in long form and allowing people to hear long explanations as to why you are the way we, why we are the way we are, I think is good. And I was on Joe Rogan's podcast a few months back. I saw uh, that. I was like, that is so awesome. So much fun. Joe Wesley. Again, Joe Rogan is <laughs> hilarious. He's hilarious. hilarious. So you see a guy, he's, he's wildly wealthy, wildly successful, one of the most famous guys in the, in the U.S. And you would think that like this guy is just like untouchable. He is a bro. He, if, you, if you call or text him, he'll get back to you. He's an awesome awesome guy so as you see on this podcast it's how he actually is just like a regular guy who's intellectually curious about life and so that on top of you know the election in life is really kind of how my brother and i came up with in the hunt and we've done we just posted our third or fourth episode we've done quite a few already we're going to keep rolling them out each week yeah. So um, I listened to your first episode because I'm one of those people who were like, if I listen to a podcast that I really like, it takes me a couple days to really like Would think digest? about it. Yeah. Unless your chick's on the right, then I have to listen to you every day. <laughs> but um, so I wanted to, to go back to you were talking about um, in a few quotes that you had, you were kind of talking about um, and I'm being very general now about some of the difficulties um, running for running for office or just some of the, the things that you go through. And one of my one of my uh, favorite quotes was um, we need leaders that are willing to step through the shrapnel 2020. Um, would you um, would you expound on that? So this was one of if, if obviously I don't want to say the most difficult, because I'm sure if you go back to history, there, there's been some 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 more difficult times, maybe running for office during the Civil War, I think it's probably pretty difficult. But we weren't there. We don't know. We don't know. Right. So but I would say say in modern history, this is, you know, going back, let's let's call it 30 to 40 years is probably the most difficult time to run for office. This country is probably the most divided that we have seen in quite some time. Um, We have COVID-19 to deal with. Wait, in time out, you got COVID during the campaign, right? I did. did. So I got COVID during the campaign. Uh, I got invited to Midland, Texas because President Trump came down to Midland to do a talk on oil and gas. And I'm running for Congress in Houston, Texas. And he invited me up to, to, to do a meeting and, and hop on Air Force One and have a meeting on, on Air Force One with he and his staff to talk about the energy industry. And obviously before you board Air Force One, they give everybody a COVID test. Now I was asymptomatic and I had obviously didn't know I had COVID. If I did, I would not have gone. But it's one of those quick rapid tests that we're waiting in line. I can see Air Force One getting ready to board the airplane and they tap me on the shoulder and they say, Mr. Hunt, come here. So uh, you tested positive for COVID. You have to go home. No now, way. Midland is eight, an eight hour drive away from Houston. So I had to go rent a car <laughs> and drive eight hours back. And you probably weren't even upset that you had COVID. You were probably just upset that you didn't get to meet Trump. It was, yes. Not, I didn't get to be the president or board Air Force One. I, I was like, this is a, this is the worst day. And, <laughs> and you wake up in the morning and I called my dad. So I was like, dad, get ready to go board Air Force One. This is, this is cool. And then like a few hours later, I'm calling him back, driving back. Like, dad, I have COVID. <laughs> like, You're like, like, God damn it. <laughs> I'm like, no. What has this happened to me? Oh. Was that before or after he endorsed you? It was after. Oh, no, it was after. So he endorsed me in, back in pre-COVID. 
actually this was back in February is when he endorsed me. And then I went to Midland and this was in right before, so this is an August timeframe, August, September. Oh, man. I, yeah. I can see it still like bothers you a little. It would, it would bother me. It would bother me too. Like, I could see the, I could see the flame. I was like, there it is. Yeah. All right. Nice try. I'm sorry to hear that. That is truly disappointing. But yeah, we get to deal with COVID and all that stuff and, that and then the summer what happened the summer too with the with the you know black lives matters movement and racial injustice issues and so 2020 was awful an awful year to run and that's why i use the word shrapnel because you have to have as my brother said on the podcast too is thick skin and 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 just like the title of dan crenshaw's book fortitude you have to have it, it just takes a lot of that which i read great book it's a good book it's a great book yeah uh, don't tell him I said that. So. It talk well. It, it talk, just give him a little plug. It talks about basically like how not to be a little bitch, like, right? right? <laughs> like snowflakes and like how snowflakes compare to like Dan Crenshaw's or, or you or like even me. I'll give myself some credit. Like how to like have tough skin and actually live life and not be a victim, right? I mean, isn't that the best summary of the book? It, it, that's exactly what it is. It okay. is you look at what he went through in his life. You're like, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, his mother, like, heck, yeah. I mean, I'm not mother, even, you know, yeah. losing, losing, losing his vision, by the way. I mean, he has, he has one eye, but there was a time there where they thought that he was going to lose sight both of his eyes. So, I mean, I mean, and this guy picks himself up, gets his, gets his master's degree from Harvard and then runs for Congress wins and, and does this. So what's your excuse? That's yeah. about. Yeah, and I don't even know if he really mentioned snowflakes that much, but I think we know exactly what population we're talking about. Yeah, well, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, now we digressed again because I, I can talk about Crenshaw all day long. Um, where, where were we? Oh, yes, the podcast. Say, yeah. Okay, yeah. so one other thing I thought was really interesting was like uh, you, you said running for office is like standing in line to get punched in the face. <laughs> I think <laughs> I the last my brother say that i think he said that okay maybe but like you know it's the same topic we were talking about you know so so you know i tell my wife all the time stay off social media because you have you have these people that do the that just drive by haters you know it's like they don't know you they haven't listened to you they don't know they have no idea what your background is where you come from and they just go online and just destroy you and what's really funny is that it doesn't bother the candidates that much like it doesn't bother me uh, but it bothers my family more than you could ever imagine. So I, I have to manage the emotions of people just literally going after me, just flat out blatant lies, um, and, and doing that while running a campaign, while you're trying to win, and while you're trying to you know stay up on 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 policy and what you're going to do when you win, and and talking to people and being out there, it's 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 a lot to deal with. Um, but the reason why veterans are, I think, uniquely equipped to handle it is because of perspective. And we always have this way of putting things in in my perspective. For example, you talk about the mud at Camp Taji when it rained. As bad as it might be on the campaign trail, I'm like, I could guarantee you it's not as bad as it was when it rained in Camp Taji. Or it's not as bad as like waiting at the um, at, at the release line for the convoy at 4 a.m. and have been there for four days and trying to leave, but it's too foggy and I'm really tired and, and my soldiers are in bed. Yeah, like it's just nothing compares, right? Having yeah. eaten in 48 hours. I mean, who cares? Yes, yes. And everybody's in the same boat with you in combat. So guess what? Deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's how, that's how running for offices. And so everyone's like, you're going to do this again. And I tell everyone, first of all, it, it's, it's a, it's a blessing and it's a joy to 
see people want you to represent them, number one. And my dad always has the saying, you can never tire of doing the right thing. And if it's the right thing to do, this is one of the gifts that I think that I think God has given me to be able to tolerate it, number one. But also, I, re- I really enjoy it. Uh, of course, we'll, of course, we're going to we're going to try to do it again. Don't get me wrong. It's tough, but it's, but it's certainly a, a worthy cause. Yeah. And then also talking about that. So um, how did that affect? Well, you also had a baby. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, during yeah. the campaign. Oh, yeah. September 25th, had, had our second daughter. Yeah. I have a two year old, another daughter in the middle of the campaign trail, COVID-19, racial injustice in the summer. It's crazy. Yeah. Like you really had your fill. Just do it all. I just do it all at one time. And now, and now, now life is easy because I don't have any. <laughs> There's no more challenges. <laughs> um, but you talk about in the podcast how like you came home the night after, you know, the night of election and you, you obviously were defeated, not to rub it in your face, but. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you kind of, I think you, you said in the podcast that your daughter and your wife were sleeping and you kind of just like, where you kind of apologized to them, like in your own way. And you said, you know, I'm sorry that I lost. And I, you know, I was doing this for you as well and not only myself but like how did that kind of feel that night it was one of the worst nights i've had in a very long time uh because also you know we're we're, we're hard chargers and we don't and we don't like losing no it's just not, losing doesn't feel good no especially when you put as much work as we did in it the last couple of years it's just it's just a, a hard tough pill to swallow and really you get up and you leave your family every day to do this and spend time away from them. And literally you're doing it for them in their future. Like the decisions that we are making right now, the legislation that we pass and how, the what we pass and how we behave and, and interact as a culture right now is what they're going to inherit. And part of my motivation for getting up every day was literally kissing them goodbye and saying like, dad, dad's doing this for you. And so when you don't win, you feel, because I, I, I can deal with my own disappointment, but I felt like I let them down. And I let a lot of my volunteers down and a lot of my supporters. Um, and that's why the next day I called a lot of my supporters and told them I'll be back in two years. Because the other thing is you want to set the good example, uh, not just for my supporters, but for the young people that worked on my campaign. So a lot of people worked really hard, put a lot of hard hours in. And at the end of the day, we, didn't, we came up a little bit short. But I want them to know that life's about setbacks. You're always going to have setbacks. It's about how you respond to these setbacks. So the next day I'm like, yep, we will be back. Don't worry. And then next time we're going to learn what we didn't do right, get better. And next time we're going to win this thing. Yeah. I'm one of your biggest fans. So I know you will win next time. I mean, I can say that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but talking about um, what you just said about some of the things that you're going to change and um, just for other veterans that are kind of listening, like what are some, if you had to AAR your campaign and you, you know, just share what you'd like, but like, what are some of the things that looking back on it that you may have like altered a little bit, or you think could have made some, some impactful changes? COVID made this very difficult. Um, COVID made this extremely difficult for us to, to run a campaign. Um, especially when you couldn't get in front of people that already agree with you. The, the whole point of running for office is not necessarily to spend time around people that agree with you and pat you on the back is to get in front of people to convince them why you're a better candidate and why they should trust you with their vote. It's not about surrounding yourself with other, with other Republicans. They're already in the tent. We need, to, we need to make the tent bigger and get other people in the tent. So for anybody, particularly veterans that are interested in running, make sure that you are reaching out to people who don't think like you. Make sure, make sure you're knocking on doors and going to homes of people 
who aren't Republicans. Those are the ones that you, that you have to convince. And I'm not saying that you should go to a, you know, a Kamala Harris rally. You're not going to get anybody there, I'll tell you that. But there are like moderate pockets in every community that you can win on the margin just by being a veteran and being the kind of person that's willing to die for the country. And those are the people you got to spend more time around. And I found that, you know, we as a campaign didn't do that a lot. I found myself in rooms surrounded by people who already voted for me or were already going to vote for me. And like-minded people. And like-minded people. Now, I, you know, not necessarily entirely our fault. COVID made that very difficult to do. Uh, it did. It made it very difficult to go in other people's homes and, and to reach out to other people. I got, I actually understand that's not entirely my campaign's fault. There were some environmental issues that, that really impacted that. But, but we could have done a better job with not surrounding ourselves with like-minded people. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a very powerful, um, that's a very powerful um, critique of yourself. And then, and then obviously like when you run again, well, let's hope, let's not be too sure, but let's hope COVID's not quite as huge of an issue um, next time you run. Right. And then also, what do you, if you had to give um, veterans that are thinking about running, because a lot of people, you know, veterans, they think about running, but they don't know if they're going to have the money. They don't know if they're going to have the support. What would you, what, what advice would you give them? So get involved in your local politics as they, as they are, as it is right now. So you're going to see, depending on, regardless, in regards of what side of the aisle you're on, so if you're a Democrat or a Republican, you're going to have, you know, groups that are going to start meeting, local groups, community groups. You know, in the Republican Party, we have Academic Club meetings. We have the Harris County Republican Party meetings. Start going to these things and start learning more about, you know, what precincts, who are your precinct chairs? What does the climate look like? Um, who are, you know, the key supporters that have been supporting this particular area or this seat for the last few decades? Uh, look at FEC reports, this kind of stuff, because that's how you get started. Um, I happen to be from Houston, born and raised. So for me, this was a bit of a homecoming. And so, you know, my name ID was relatively decent because I was born and raised here. But I had to really work on meeting some of the key players and also make my intentions known that at some point I wanted to run for office. And I would start there. And you start showing up to stuff and people are going to start looking at you and they say, so why are so-and-so here? What did you do? Where you're from? What's your background? And once they get to know you as an individual, you won't even necessarily even ask yourself to run. They'll ask you to do it. Like, well, we need people like you to run. I would also say that, you know, I ran for U.S. Congress, uh, which is a you know, federal race, but also look at your state level, um, state seats. Look at, your, look, at, look, at, look at the state Senate as well. Look at, you know, county commissioners here are a really big deal. Um, the, the Harris County judge here in Houston, it's a really big job. It's not just Congress. It's not just being on Fox and, and, having, and having, you know, the sexy interviews. Really, all politics is local, and we need military veterans and people that believe in this country in all phases of our government, from city council all the way up to the Senate and to the governor. Yeah, I definitely agree, and I think you know that the reason that I'm doing this podcast series is because I was disappointed to see the article or the, the fact that um, there are less veterans serving in Congress now than there have been since World War II. And obviously there's, you know, some reason because of that, because there was more veterans during World War II. So there would have been more people in office. But still, if you actually take a look at who ran, there was a lot of veterans that ran. Yes. So how do we get these veterans in these places? And I'm, and I've worked on the Hill, you know, I've seen the Matt Gallagher's, I've seen the Dan Crunchless, and I've seen 
even on the Democratic side, um, what they bring to the table, uh, what what veterans can bring to the table. And, and um, so so just having them there, I think, is very valuable for the American people in general. Yes. I think we're, we're seeing a bit of a resurgence here now. Uh, and the, the, the World War II, the veterans during World War II argument is a good one to make. And, and what happens is that you had a lot of, you had a big war, and then some 20 years later, you saw people getting back and getting back into the fray to serve. Even those that didn't do career in military, they wanted to serve again. This is, you're starting to see that now from the post 9-11 group. Mm-hmm. And so even in, in terms of those running for office, we saw the most veterans running for office this last cycle than we've seen in like 20 years. Right. And women, women veterans too. And women veterans, yes. Yes. Running. And so that's what's important. We got to, no, we all got to win. We got to win. But it's good to see the resurgence of us, of us getting back into the fray. And again, it, it literally is all about service. I make the joke, like no offense to lawyers and attorneys out there. We don't need any more attorneys in Washington. I think. I think or lobbyists. Or lo- <laughs> I'm a registered lobbyist, but you know, I, I, know. I, know. <laughs> I pick my poison, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you're a lobbyist but a veteran, eh, it's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, a lot of it's pro bono and it's on veteran issues or armed right. service committee. And then we'll just call it bipartisan. Yeah. Okay. I got a few more questions for you because um, you're just so fun to talk to. Um, so you, you talk about on the podcast and, and I'm not quoting you directly, but you basically said that the problem with cancel culture is that we're just not listening to each other anymore. We're just not listening to what that person has to say. And, um, and then you talk about also like how um, people say, you know, let's not talk about politics, family, religion, but those are the kind of the things that we need to talk, talk about. about. <laughs> um, so I'll let you, but I, but I love those statements and I was listening to your podcast while I was running and I was, uh, realized that I was like saying, yes, 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 I agree. And then I looked around and I realized like people were staring at me, <laughs> okay. um, but I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I think too. So, so I'll let you expound on that because I love that part of your podcast. Yeah. So I think I think the one thing that I, I wake up in the morning and I say to myself, usually, you know, are you going to seek to be offended or are you going to seek to understand? And the reason why we have we have cancer culture is because people are literally seeking to be offended. And, and if I could prove that somebody offended me, then it gives me the right to cancel that person, regardless of if they weren't trying to offend you or not. Or maybe they may have said something that isn't politically correct, but are they trying to offend you or is that person trying to learn something? And so I think that we as Americans need to take a different posture and say, look, everything that somebody says isn't going to be perfect, but what's their intent? And can we use this as a learning situation? And this this is literally why my brother and I started this podcast. I think we talk about this one thing, this one piece where we talk about like African, being called African-American versus being black. Yes. I'm like, so I'm a black guy. I don't, this African-American thing, I've never liked it. I've, I was like, this doesn't make sense. I, I'm an American of African descent, I guess, but really you wanna know that I'm black. That, let's, 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 let's just call it what it is. Uh, um, you could be a white person from South Africa who becomes a American citizen and you're, you are technically African-American, but that, that's not why they're asking you that. They wanna know that you're black. And so what I find interesting is that a lot of white people are like, you know, Wesley, the African-American, dude, just call me black. I know what you mean. 
Okay. Yeah, you're like I've I've been this my whole life. Like I know, I'm, like I've let's been black just... my whole life. You're not going to offend me, right? <laughs> so, yeah. But we live in a world to where even something as simple and as minuscule as that becomes such a big deal because people are just trying to be offended. And that's the that's the repercussions of cancel culture. That's the repercussions of having so much social media and everybody can hide behind their 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 tag or hide behind a name without having to confront people directly. Right. And to take it a step further, you also talk about, um, obviously you can say I really liked your podcast, um, but you take it a step further and you talk about how you've had white people tell you like, I, I can't talk about racism because I'm white. Right. And you're like, well, actually I need you to talk about racism because I've experienced it my whole life. And I need to find out what your thoughts are so we can have a conversation. Did I capture that? Exactly. Correctly? I mean, and that goes back to cancel culture because yeah. if a white person says something that isn't quite right, they're afraid to say anything, but isn't the point to have the conversation? The world doesn't need to know really what black people feel about racism. The assumption is that we don't like it. Obviously. <laughs> I mean, world, what is to like? I mean, what? what? What the world needs to know is that we want to embrace the opinions of the majority of white people so we can work together mm-hmm. to understand each other better. So whatever, whatever white people say, I just can't talk about race. I'm like, so you're just not going to, we're not, so we're not going to learn anything about the way you view it. And you're not going to learn anything about the way I view it. And then we're going to retreat to our corners and then nothing gets fixed. Mm-hmm. Like we need to talk about everything and there's a way to do it. Obviously you have to do it in a respectful way. And then I also will always say, let's assume that people are well-intentioned mm-hmm. when want to talk about it. Right. Definitely. And then that's how you learn stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. And I heard that and I was like, um, because, you know, you're always kind of worried about being cancel cultured. I mean, even like the host of The Bachelor was cancel cultured like last week. I mean, come on, Chris Harrison, like he's great. But, you know, if you actually look like you said, if you actually look what he was saying, he was saying, let's give this woman a chance to talk about what she did. And, you know, say, I'm sorry that I went to this party when I was in a sorority girl 10 years ago. And I'm, you know, I understand now why this happened. And he was giving her the avenue to talk on her own behalf without him putting words in her mouth. And he was like, shut down. And I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm just like, could we just hear what she had to say? Is this, isn't it also ridiculous that we're judging people about what they did 10 years ago? Right. I mean, it's if you the- judge me like what I did like last year, I mean, we'd be in trouble. So oh, no, right. <laughs> I mean, like, really? I mean, yesterday, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just stop right now. <laughs> right. You know, I think we, 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 we evolve. We've evolved as a people. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, are we really doing this? And look, look canceling people, you know, canceling somebody or canceling somebody for a mistake that happened. How many years ago is is what is what part of the problem is, but here's the issue with canceling. This cancel needs to go. It needs to, if you're going to cancel people, it needs to be equitable. It needs to be equitable canceling, and it's not. Okay, one side's getting canceled and getting silenced, and the other side is not. And what side is which? I'm just curious. I think, I think you have an idea where I'm going here. All right. But, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. In all honesty, you know, you, you see you see conservative voices that get that get canceled. And yet a liberal counterpart or a Democrat counterpart would do the exact same thing and they let it ride. And my argument is, is you have got to have consistent treatment. And if there's not consistent treatment, then we need to do away with cancel culture in general and figure out a way 
to have, an, to have a culture of understanding and a culture of dialogue from all sides of the aisle. Yeah, Republicans are, I mean, I'll just say it for you, like Republicans are definitely being targeted right now for this. And yeah. And, and, and we're talking about our First Amendment rights. We're talking about freedom of speech. This is, it's not freedom of speech if you're, if you're liberal. It's, it's actually freedom of speech for everyone. Mm-hmm. And what I what also find interesting is that this is how things have really changed. So twenty years ago, when I was in when I was in high school, wow! Uh, but, but when I was in high school, don't call us old because I think we're about the same age. I know, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> we are so young. Right? I know, right? We're still so young. <laughs> it was different then. So I, my liberal friends in high school weren't. I didn't grow up in a cancel culture era. So my liberal friends in high school, who I'm still very good friends with today didn't cancel anybody. In fact, their idea of being liberal was the whole, was the idea of being liberal and open to everybody else's point of view and their mindset. That's the definition of being liberal to them was being open. It's being classically liberal, if you will. Now that's, that's changed. What, what I've seen is that it's more the conservative people that are more open to everybody else's. Like, like we don't really cancel people. We don't say some of, look, some do. There, there are always pockets of, of, every, of everything. But what I find myself is accepting some of my friends that I know and are liberal for the for the you know for the last twenty years. A lot of them found out that I was running as a Republican, and I got canceled. And I was like, "But we've never agreed politically <laughs> for the last twenty years." I knew it, and I didn't care because I think you're a good person. We just don't view the world the same way. But now, all of a sudden, I'm a bad person when you find out that I'm running as a Republican. That's not how that works. Well, and fair and being fair to you, you also called them out and you said, hey, do you believe everything that the Democratic Party feeds you? And I don't necessarily I'm sure you feel the same way. And you said it like I don't necessarily agree with everything the Republican Party says, but I still have the right to have my opinion without being picked on. Exactly, because you don't expect us to pick on you. So I, I don't want you picking on me either. And let's just have an intellectual conversation and figure out how we can find some middle ground. Because I guarantee you, if we talk for about 10 minutes, you'll be like, we probably don't disagree on as much as you think we do. Right. No, definitely. Yeah, there probably are a lot of ways that we actually have the same views. And then you also talked about um, how being a one topic voter. Yeah. Um, how <laughs> people make fun of them and you're just like, well, at least that person has priorities. That's it. I have, I have no issues. With somebody being a one issue voter, none. Yeah, one issue voter. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, no, it's the same. One topic, one issue. A lot, yeah. a lot of people bag on them. They're uneducated. No, no, no. If you're passionate enough about this one thing, mm-hmm. you want to put your name behind just this one thing, mm-hmm. better than nothing. Number one, and number two, that's your right. Right, and if that passion gets you out to vote, then <laughs> thank you. Do it. <laughs> thank you. Do I it. I issue with the one issue voter. I do have an issue with the one issue legislator. You could be a one issue issue voter, but you can't be a one issue leader. And the reason why I say that is because you may have your priorities, but you have to be able to look at where where the climate is for the entire country across a broad spectrum of issues, whether that be First Amendment, Second Amendment, um, international affairs, um, um, the economy. You can't afford to make decisions based on just one thing when you're a leader. Well, you weren't hired to do that. Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. But there are some legislators that I think are, are one issue <laughs> legislators that I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of. You're like, it's time for you to go. 
it's time for you to go. Yeah. yeah. A few. I'm not gonna miss any names, but uh, there are there are a few out there. You know who you are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, two more questions, and then I'll let you go. Um, just had to ask you. Um, what did you think about the Ted Cruz thing going yeah. to Cancun? Yeah, being here in Houston and dealing with that. So. Um, actually, I know Senator Cruz, and and I know Heidi, and I know his family. And, Do you know the, Snowflake? The but I never, I've never met Snowflake. I'm okay, that's sure. the dog, just for our listeners. That's the dog. Yeah, that's you know, this is so, so. This is an issue that you know here in Houston. You know, we had a really bad freeze, a really bad week, and I think Senator Cruz actually went on TV. He apologized. He made a mistake. And what I really want to see people do is to kind of rally around our current senator to get things done and to get things fixed. He has such a big platform. So sitting back and making fun of him, is it going to get our power better? Is it going to turn our lights on? Is it going to turn our water on? He apologized, made a mistake. Now let's work with the senator to get things done for Texas. And I think this is what, this is my biggest issue kind of with our culture. And that is what, what it's now become is not, now we're piling on. And I feel like every tweet or everything that we say that's negative towards Senator Cruz is something that we aren't saying to fix the actual problem. And over time, that accumulates. Now, can we, hey, look, you know, whenever you make a mistake, sometimes you got, you got, you got to take your licks. I understand that. And nobody's arguing with that. And even Senator Cruz himself said that, look, if he could do it again, he wouldn't have done it. But he got on the plane. He came right back here to Houston. Right. And let's now now let's now let's get to work. Well, and let's be honest, like if you had the money to take your kids to Cancun, why or to a warmer place, why not? Why not do that? Like, should he have necessarily gone along? And then like you you, you read the reports, you can't help but read the reports about like eleven yeah. year old child dying in like a trailer park, and you're just like, Well, you know, Cruz's kids got to go to Cancun and like there is a little bit of that, but I agree with you that if we continue to make these things an issue, then we become so removed from the real issue. Yes, yes. And when I, 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 I can tell you what, the real issue is not Senator Cruz going to Cancun. The real, the real issue that we have here is how do we fix our grid here in Houston and what are we going to do about, about our industries that make Texas what it is? That's, that's the real issue that I think mm-hmm. we got we to be careful we don't talk too much about about the stuff that's just perfunctory. Let's let's just move on and let's just focus on what needs to get fixed and what needs to get done. Right. And we're probably just all a little jealous because we all probably want to go to Cancun. I mean, we <laughs> haven't been anywhere in like a year, most of us. So let's be honest. I mean, hey, how was your trip? Is it nice there? How's it going in Cancun? Yeah, we're rubbing people the wrong way. And this is what I understand. I think Senator Cruz gets into, you know, you're one of two people in the in the state of Texas. And when your when your state is hurting, you know you don't get to leave. And I no. think as military people, we get it. We eat last. We leave last. We're the last ones on the truck. We're the last ones to get home. That's mm-hmm. that's, that's the burden of being a leader. We're the um, first one to take the ass chewing, so it doesn't roll downhill. We take it all. We we are the ones as leaders that take that responsibility. And and again, I, I just feel like you know, given everything that was going on, given the last few months, Senator Cruz is a very busy man. And just, just, just like he admitted, look, I made a mistake and, and mm-hmm. let's get to work. Yep. Couldn't agree more. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Do you have any last minute thoughts um, before I let you go about, uh, I mean, I could talk to you all day about so many things, but uh, <laughs> what uh, just last minute thoughts about running for Congress yourself and other veterans that are thinking about running some motivational words. We need more veterans to do it. It's the most gratifying thing really I've ever done in my life. And hence the reason why I'm going to, I'm going to continue to keep trying to do it. 
And we, we need veterans and people that, again, I believe, really believe in the principles of this country. Like, like that's the most important thing to me. Do you believe this country or not? We are not perfect, but this is the greatest country in the world. And those that are willing to put their lives on the line understand that and they believe it because we were willing to put our lives on the line and we need you back up here in Washington. Amen. Beautiful ending. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me on. This is awesome. Anytime. Yeah, I will have you back on because you're very charismatic and I think we can bullshit. So no, we're right. all day, yeah, all day long. All day. If you can talk to me about Taj, you then work it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Wesley. Thank you. Appreciate it.